Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's edition of Politico's EU Confidential Podcast, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the EU and European politics. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, author of the Brussels Playbook column, and in this week's show, we discuss European Competition Commissioner Margrethe Vestar's decision to hit Google with a 2.4 billion euro fine. What Google has done is illegal under EU antitrust rules. It has denied other companies the chance to compete on the merits and to innovate. And most importantly, it has denied European consumers the benefits of competition genuine choice and innovation. The head of the OECD, Aniel Gurria, tells us how austerity won't be enough to get the world economy going again. We are 10 years into the crisis, and still we have not reached the level of growth of the world economy that we had before the crisis. We think we are in a low-growth trap. And our Brussels Brains Trust, Alva Finn and Lena Abarus, join me for our EU WTF and Dear Politico features. Now we turn to Google, which was hit this week with a 2.4 billion euro fine from the European Commission. That came via competition commissioner Margrethe Vesta, who declared that Google manipulated its search results to promote its own Google shopping service. Google says it, quote, respectfully disagrees with the commission and will consider an appeal. Joining me to discuss the case is Politico's intrepid competition and tech reporter Nick Hurst. Hi, Ryan. Good to have you on, Nick. Now, you follow Vestar for a living, and there are worse things to do in this world. She's an exciting character. Why don't we just dive right into it and start with the size of the fine? That was a bit of a surprise, and so was the rush timing. What, if anything, do you think this tells us about how Vestar handled the case and what might come next? Because she's got some other cases on the board as well for for Google. That's right. I mean, certainly the timing was a surprise because it was widely expected, the case was widely expected to end just before August. The size of the fine was about twice as high as the figures that have been going round. In recent weeks, people expected a fine that would be more like 1 billion. It turned out being 2.4 billion. What lessons can we draw from that about the case? I think it tells us more actually about Commissioner Vestaya, who really seems to be uh, masterful at stage managing these decisions, uh, meticulously planning them to make sure that they have maximum impact and for organising her services so that you don't have the sorts of leaks or, or so on that can undermine the impact of the announcement. Because above all, she's a politician that really understands the, important, the importance of the announcement for getting her message across. It's true that there's other cases going on involving Google. There's at least two other cases that are open. 
they could involve fines. They could involve more press conferences where she stands up and attacks the company in public. It's not looking very good for Google at the moment. Well, indeed, because normally when a case like this lands where the EU goes after an American tech company, you see almost a united front from United States voices where they rush to condemn the decision, they call it protectionism, they say that the EU is just jealous, it doesn't innovate. And we didn't really see that this time. You know, you, you had some level of concern coming out of Washington, but Google's known to be quite friendly to the Democratic Party. Uh, there were plenty of American companies that were in the list of complainants who were not happy with Google either. So it wasn't. we kind of seem to have moved past that Europe versus America dynamic that we've seen in previous cases. Yeah, I think everyone was aware that these allegations would be coming. So a lot of the American companies that oppose Google had done quite a vigorous campaign beforehand to make themselves known, to point out that it wasn't just Europeans that had problems with Google. But the funny thing is that in the commission, in fact, in all of Brussels, everyone was scrutinising the Twitter account of Donald Trump in the hours <laughs> after the decision to see whether the great man would have noticed the decision and would have had anything to say about it in public. Now, it's true that he is no big fan of Google, but he is, his motto is America first, so it was, uh, it was definitely an unpredictable element. Mm-hmm. The US Chamber of Commerce actually came out with a statement which was very interesting because of all people, they might have been expected to bash the anti-EU, EU is protectionist drum. And actually, they came out with a statement where they kind of rubbished the idea that this was some form of discrimination against American companies or, or the like. They singled out other problems with the issue, but um, the transatlantic criticism really didn't get or got mm. surprisingly little uptake. There is a major strand of criticism that says the commission is trying to solve a non-existent problem, that customers are happy with the service that Google provides. So where's the consumer harm, all of these critics ask? And at one level, I don't quite buy that because the question under EU law isn't did the consumer win today it's does competition exist tomorrow and will the consumer be hurt in the long term by some kind of abusive practice that might be investigated what do you make of those arguments is it enough to say people love my product so therefore I can do what I want no that's that's clearly not enough the problem is is that Google really puts these kind of arguments to the test because it is the ultimate consumer company. It provides all these fantastic services for free. Most people don't pay a single cent to Google. Over the last 10 years... Free in the sense that you don't pay with cash. That's true. You pay with your data, usually. But people people have different kind of perspectives on on that. In many ways, it it provides an awesome service to consumers. But of course, the question is, is is, uh, what competition regulators need to look at is... is, uh, you know, you may be great for consumers now, but are you doing things that in the medium term to long term will push rivals out of the market and eventually mean that consumers uh, lose out? Now, the big challenge with that sort of analysis is that it gets more and more and more speculative. You know, it's kind of difficult to look several years in the future and predict what competition is going to And it's actually OK to push your competitors out of the market if your product's just better. That's true. But it's not OK if you are rigging the system, and that's what pushes them out of the market. Right, exactly. The other aspect of this uh, debate about consumers and competition is that uh, it's, the long, it's the long-standing stick, this whole argument, the long-standing stick that people use to beat antitrust enforcement or European antitrust enforcement. Because they say, 
oh, the Europeans, they protect competition, not consumers. They protect European companies. Well, not when it comes to cartels. Yeah. I mean, now I sound a bit like I'm joining the EU side, so I don't want to leave that impression. But it seems that the European companies are particularly bad on the cartel front. You know, nine of the top ten fines ever have gone to European companies. And in some of the other more innovative spaces of antitrust law and the economy itself, you know, Americans are at the forefront, mostly because they're bigger rather than in a protectionist sense. Yeah, Commissioner Vestager, Margaret Vestager, is in a catch-22 situation, right? Because she gets hit with these accusations of being anti-American with her antitrust cases. It's just a fact. It's a sad fact for European politicians, Mm -hmm. businesses, so on, that the biggest companies in the world in many of the most important sectors of the world, are American and hence are going to naturally attract a lot more antitrust scrutiny. As for cartels, it's also very telling that there's a lot more Asian and European companies that get involved in cartels. Because they do the backroom deals. (laughs) Which is also not a good sign about their economies. Okay, well, thanks for that insight, Nick, and we will hear from you shortly. Thank you very much, Ryan. Now it's time for this week's guest interview on EU Confidential, Angul Gurria. He's the long-standing Secretary-General of the OECD, which is the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. It's a really useful organisation, but hard to describe. Once an intergovernmental body, kind of like the United Nations or the EU, but actually it's really like the world's biggest think tank. It's based in a chateau in Paris, tick, and its members are 35 of the rich democratic countries of the world. So far, Donald Trump hasn't tried to defund it, embarrass it, or give it a nasty label. So that's actually quite an achievement. What they also do is give their members a lot of truth serum about where they rank against each other on hundreds of indicators and what they need to do to keep growing and progressing. Mr. Gurria goes on a global roadshow each year, and he was in Brussels for the latest leg of that roadshow, where he presents his recommendations to national governments. And when he was here, he could barely contain his enthusiasm. That's the table thumping you're about to hear when you listen to the interview. And like a traveling salesman with his samples, he got out a huge pile of reports for me, started laying them out on the table, and we went through everything from one-page fact sheets to dense store stoppers. And then we sat down to geek out about economic structural reform. Have a listen. Mr. Gurria, thank you very much for joining us here in the Politico offices in Brussels. Thank you. It's great to be here. I don't know if the audience knows, but I'm a real structural reform geek. I'm passionate about how we can make our economies work better and avoid all of these images of being the austerity police or the other images that come with people who try and drive economic change. Uh, So you're coming with this message that the global economy is doing better, but not good enough. So do you want to tell us a bit more about what's behind that message? Well, better but not good enough is a message that we uh, delivered a few days ago when we presented our economic outlook. Now, we are 10 years into the crisis, and still we have not reached the level of growth of the world economy that we had before the crisis. But doesn't that mean we're just in a new normal? I mean, I, I, sometimes I get frustrated when people call it a crisis. Because we I think call it, no, we, we don't call it the new normal because we don't want to get used to it. And we don't call it crisis because we don't think it has the characteristics of the crisis being unexpected, etc. We think we are in a low growth trap. Mm-hmm. And we think that we need to use fiscal, monetary, and structural change. Mm-hmm. 
ideally invest in long-term infrastructure mm-hmm. or maybe what they call the soft infrastructure mm-hmm. knowledge. Well, what about something like green growth? Because uh, you've got a new report out on green growth as well, don't you? Well, the new report out on green growth basically says invest in climate, invest in growth, which basically means defending the climate and fighting climate change can be good business. Good investments can generate jobs, etc. And then the third leg, of course, is structural change. Education, innovation, competition, regulation, the taxes, R&D, you know, flexibility in the labor market, flexibility in the product markets. These are the things that are going to define whether we actually move forward and are continue to be competitive or not. And we are perceiving something which is very worrisome. We're at a moment when we need more structural change because we are running out of space on the monetary policy side. I mean, we've done practically everything, including negative interest rates. We've run out of the space that we had, not completely. There's still this fiscal space because of the interest rates, but most of the countries are pretty tight in terms of their budgets and their debt, their fiscal. They don't want to increase the debt. So that leaves you the third pillar, which is go structural. Go national, go structural. Mm-hmm. Yes, go green, go resilient, go you know, inclusive. Yes, but you know, go structural. And that has, I believe, two very important characteristics. One is you can continue to do the reforms one after the other. And second, the reforms reinforce each other. Do you have to think more and more, not just about what is economically correct or interesting to debate, but get into that space of how to help politicians solve their political problems as well if they want to take forward your ideas? Yes, And one of the reasons is a mea culpa that we must make. We were not good enough to explain the benefits of globalization. And then we let the backlash of globalization happen. Globalization does not have a face or a neck where you can hang it from. If you're not happy with globalization because there were too many people left out, because there were too many people that are threatened by automation and whatever... The problem is you're taking, for example, you're taking trade as a proxy of globalization. And then what happens? Well, frankly, not only is it very unfair because trade is not supposed to take care of everything under the sun, but also it's inefficient because you're targeting the wrong devil, you know, you're fighting the wrong fight. And then uh, we haven't been able to transmit to the people why it is so important to continue to promote free trade, to continue to promote open markets, to continue to actually promote free flows of investment. There is a reason why these global value chains have been formed over the years. But, you know, the question, for example, of inequality, well, that just continues to to grow. And it was growing before the crisis, but nothing like a good crisis to increase the inequality, <laughs> and we got it as good as they come, you know. just uh, If you're a big multinational, you can take the profits outside and put them elsewhere. 
not pay taxes. So basically, there is a lack of tolerance with these things. Mm-hmm. But you're, as the head of the OACD, really involved in that tax reform process. It's almost as if some of the existing institutions have not dared take it on. You know, it's addressed in conclusions you're right. and summits and so on, but it's almost like they look to the OECD no, we, we, to we took depoliticize it. We it took it on, forward. but, you know, we had been working on it for 12 years, and we had a total sum of 40 bilateral tax information exchange agreements. And you basically needed to send the photo of the moment when you were shooting your mother in the head or something like that in order to make it count, because otherwise you couldn't activate Mm -hmm. these bilateral agreements. Today we have more than 3,000 bilateral and regional multilateral agreements. And agreements by virtue of one single signing of one single instrument. Mm -hmm. About 100 countries are involved. And um, that's going to be that's the that turning is, point. That's going to actually well, actually, get it's us happening back on already. the right track. People know that starting next September, if you have an account in the bank, in you know the Caribbean or mm-hmm. in some place exotic in the world, not Luxembourg, definitely not Luxembourg, definitely not Luxembourg, not anymore. By the way, seriously, they that's are good news. Playing really, really, really very, very straight and very good, and they're. Becoming okay, that's a shout out to Xavier Battelle here and, from the OECD. Yes, absolutely. But uh, you know, they've been very serious and very professional and very thorough because they know that this is happening and that this is coming and that the tax man or woman is going to get your name. And if they didn't have it already because you told them, they're going to invite you for a cup of tea, you know? Yeah. Or a consortium of journalists will get it if the tax man doesn't get it. 80 billion euros have already been received by the coffers Mm -hmm. through programs of, quote-unquote, voluntary disclosure. Mm -hmm. But 80 billion have already been received. Mm -hmm. I mean, the OECD's budget is 400 million per year, less than that. So we've already generated 200 times our budget. Now, this makes me think you need to establish some kind of clock at the OECD headquarters. We should get a commission. We should get a commission. A Tobin tax for the OECD. And the other other one is companies. Mm -hmm. This is for people. The other one, you're right. The other one is for companies. The other one is multinationals are not paying their fair share. Mm -hmm. Well, we saw in the case of Apple in the European Union dispute that they were paying the very handsome 0.05% with taxes, which, uh, you know, looks pretty good. <laughs> I wrote an article called Eye Failure, how, how Apple misjudged Brussels. And Imagine... Apple is not happy with that sort of well, no, story, that sort of headline. Not, 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 neither is Ireland, because then they were so that this is your money. and said, no, it's not my money. You know, it's somebody else's <laughs> money. So... It's the first time the Minister of Finance says, no, I won't take the money, you know, the 13 billion of it. But mm-hmm. the, the important thing here is the ethics are changing because the politics are changing, because the economics are changing. Mm-hmm. But the problem that we have with this loss of trust and loss of faith and loss of confidence is that you have a fragmentation of the economics which gives rise to a fragmentation of the social outcomes, which gives rise to a fragmentation of the political outcomes, 
which gives rise to very thin majorities or very fragile coalitions, where then even if you have a very enlightened leader, they normally cannot take a decision that is bold enough because you would lose your guy on the right or the guy on the left in the coalition, then you would have to call another election. You never know what's going to happen. And, but you're you know, in a low growth trap if you pursue you, that. You've seen all these miscalculations. Otherwise, yes, in low growth trap, but this is, you know, maybe the problem is what worries you most, mm-hmm. the next election or getting out of the low growth trap. Taking up that idea of you and the OECD as the good angels, are there good The fact examples? that my name is Angel is just a coincidence. Indeed, right? you know, indeed, yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, subconsciously, it was in my mind. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't escape it. But I wonder if you have some good examples, people you really admire, where you say, okay, this guy or this woman really did something where they had to take a risk or sacrifice their own political future in order to get an important long-term job done. I'll give you a more functional example because this is related to both political courage as well as to um, results. The Hartz reforms in Germany were taken about 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And then Germany, in the middle of the crisis in 2009, went for a balanced budget, you know, a constitutionally defined balanced budget. And in a couple of years, we're going to have a, even the lender are going to go for balanced budget. And, you know, so th- what's happening? Well, they never really had very high unemployment. Mm-hmm. And they never really had the drop in growth, although they went through the desert, you know, 2009, and like we all did. But they recover faster. And they're, well, today, practically, they have a, almost full employment, but also they have had high levels of employment relative to others for a long time. In the case of Spain, they took their tough decisions about five years ago. Job market reform, labor market reform. They've now been generating 500,000, 600,000, 700,000 jobs per year now for two or three years. My only problem with that is that they took those decisions too late. Now, how about Italy? They were from last year, or from, you know, the Jobs Act, Renzi. He finally got it together. I worked twice with Berlusconi governments, twice with Prodi, and once with Monti, with Letta, and then with Renzi. Renzi was the only one who had the votes. Renzi was the only one who really could put it together. He did it. He spent a lot of political capital, and then he passed those transformations. It's only now that it's starting to give rise. Mm-hmm. And what's happening in a country like France? But now to succeed where others have failed. Well, now what, you have the, missing ingredient now you have the leadership, the unity in the party, and you have the votes. It's more doable than it's ever been because the political conditions are just right so you have to use that political capital that he has built over both the presidential election as well as the uh, parliamentary election. Mm-hmm. Use his majority and, uh, well, hopefully go for the big transformations. You see this very clearly. Now, Portugal is a case of recovering, well, the jobs dynamic, the growth, and also 
the uh, fiscal uh, and making uh, one of those balance. strange coalitions work. I mean, everyone wrote them off when that uh, when when the last coalition was formed. Everybody thought that it was going to last uh, a couple of weeks, you know. And then it's been working. It's very very exemplary. And uh, I think the prime minister and the president both are showing great uh, political acumen. But that's another element that you don't have in any formulas about structural change. You know, that's a, the political leadership becomes absolutely crucial. But the, then the question of trust. Mm-hmm becomes very important. That means anybody who is riding on a platform of change really now has to go for real change. People uh, people are very uh, frustrated. Three of those points all bring me to think about the new UK government. One, because Brexit's coming up in two years. So the Spanish example surely says Britain needs to be doing structural reforms now to avoid any gap, cliff-edge shock that it will occur when it does have its Brexit in two years' time. It's a fragile government, but also it really doesn't necessarily have a lot of the ingredients there to push back against a lot of what was informing Brexit, a lot of the demands that were informing Brexit. So do you think that they can do that, or what's your recipe that the UK well, government should follow? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope they succeed. I mean, we all succeed. We all have a duty to make Brexit as smooth and as seamless as possible to reduce the disruption and reduce the costs. I did my master's degree in Leeds University in the UK, and I'm a child of the uh, Shevening scholarships and of the um, British Council. I have actually two of my three children, dual nationality, Mexicans and, and British, because they were born in Britain while I was there. I was studying in Leeds and then I went back to work at the International Coffee Organization. I was a Mexican ambassador to the International Coffee Organization. And my daughter was born there. My son had been born in Leeds. My son has two children. My daughter has two children in Mexico. Both are British also. So I have six of my next kin who are British. And therefore, I have a big stake here. I mean, I fought against Brexit. And we lost because those whose future was at stake, the young, the young, they didn't turn out. They didn't turn out. 60% of them didn't turn out. Just a few of them would have turned out and they would have changed the fate of the UK and the fate of Europe and everything else. In other words, But they didn't, and they left some other people to decide for them. And that is a big lesson that the people should learn. It is, it's okay if you don't agree with whatever, you know, so you go there and vote one way or the other, but don't stop voting because... If you don't go and vote, then somebody else will be taking the decisions for you. But then what happened happened, and now we've got to make it work. Thank you so much. And I've got to say, this tie, Mr. Gurria is wearing a very bold orange tie, a geometric orange tie. I think the Dutch would be proud to have The Dutch would today. be delighted to look at the tie. Where did you pick this one up? Uh, this one was given to me in a very embarrassing moment. Because tell the, us everything. Tell us the everything. director of the Faculty of Law of the National University of Mexico came to visit me in Paris because he wanted to push you know, some initiative in the Law Institute in La Sorbonne or something like that. And he was wearing this tie. And I said, oh, what a wonderful tie you have. And then, lo and behold, he starts taking it off <laughs> and giving it to me. <laughs> Now, I happen to be wearing one of my most liked and beloved ties at that time on me, but I had no choice but to take it it off. And I had to give it back. Now, this was very nice. I like it, but uh, 
uh, there there went mine, you know. Uh, so. Um, well, but, uh, anyway, I, I hope you could buy a replica of the <laughs> yeah. tie. I mean, I'm not sure this one's going to be on sale in many stores. No, but, no, no, uh, <laughs> no, not on sale. But anyway, excellent. Well, thank you for your time, Mr. Green. Thank you for the pleasure. opportunity and congratulations on the program. It's catching. It's catching fire. Huh? That was Anil Guria, Secretary General of the OECD. And now it's time to welcome back our Brussels Brains Trust for the fun part of the podcast. Welcome back, Alva Finn. Hi, Ryan. Welcome back, Lena Aberus. Hello, Ryan and Alva. Uh, well, it's time for EUWTF, where we are going to analyze yet another jaw-dropping moment in European politics and life this week. So are you ready? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Good. Let's go right into it. I've called this one, Check Yourself Before You Wreck Yourself. <laughs> Lena, if, you, if there's a laugh there, you've got to come out with that laugh. There you go. That is Lena I can't laughing. take it anymore. <laughs> Okay, so let's get back to the checks. We learned this week that Uber isn't the only company with a sexual harassment problem. Deutsche Welle reported that Czech power conglomerate, CEZ, decided to choose its female interns this year by asking them to dress in bikinis and hard hats. Oh, dear. Indeed. And then they would be voted through a Facebook competition and learn whether they got the internship or not. (laughs) When a local TV station found out about it, they ran a, quote, flattering feature on the plan, according to tech website CNET. The company's solution to the backlash that emerged? They were going to give internships to all of the bikini contestants. I'm kind of at a loss for words on this one. Who wants to kick off? Unfortunately, we're in June. (laughs) Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. I mean, there's so many layers to that. Not only having well, them not voted, on the ladies. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, not, not on those ladies. No, I was just wondering whether or not uh, Jarova would have anything to say about this as a Czech gender equality. So this is Commissioner Jarova. Yeah. So you're the gender equality commissioner. You're from the Czech Republic, but you didn't yet make a statement about this one. That's a that is an interesting approach to the portfolio. Lena, how about you? Look, it's um, I can't confirm, but I'm sure there are other. Bad behaviors and horrible things are happening uh, across Europe and for many uh, other companies. The fact that it it is now it was leaked to the media. Everybody knows about the companies, knows about uh, uh, poor darling these interns that they had to go through this really really <laughs> uh, bad it's experience. We're not it's laughing. Terrible. <laughs> and we're laughing here, but these people really took it seriously because they are desperate to have an internship. Exactly. But who, what do you think goes through the minds of these uh, human resources departments? Well, and I these don't managers? want to think about what uh, goes through their minds. My 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 point here is like I refuse to brand it as something a check. Rather that it's a company's behavior, company's bad ethics, company's unethical uh, manner of dealing with humans. So whether it is the Czech commissioner or uh, the Swedish commissioner or the Danish, name it, I believe that it's a human thing. All of us, we should uh, like absolutely make a statement and let's not brand the country as a country that they do weird stuff like that because this is an individual behavior of, of this company and they are adding to their own reputation. So I'm sure many people should stop doing any business with them and speak up loud about them. But uh, And I, maybe there's maybe a wider issue here about the role that appearance plays in 
the labor market. I had a conversation at a women's forum in Rome this week, and one of the participants there was saying how good it is now that there's a rise in video CVs in France. I just had red flags immediately where I just thought, you know, without going into too much detail, Mm -hmm. this person certainly struck me as someone that liked to hire people like them. And the video allowed that judgment to be made a bit quicker so that no one could trick you with some nice words or a name that sounded like one particular background or another. And I just thought, hmm, maybe we are placing too much emphasis on appearance in general, whether it's internships or not, in the way that we go around hiring people. Well, the Euro CV, as we know, requires a picture, uh, whereas there isn't, that isn't the practice in every European country. But when and that's you come that to... standard CV when you apply to work at an EU organisation. Yeah, well, some people request it. I think it's called the Europass. Yes. That, yeah. So I think that's actually brought into this culture in the European kind of uh, bubble. Indeed. Well, let's move on to an EU thumbs up. We thought we would introduce a new element into this discussion. If we're going to do the jaw-dropping moment, we can do the positive news moment as well. So my nomination, and uh, you can tell me if you, you disagree, <laughs> a Belgian court overruled the Leuven Commune, that's a small town outside of Brussels, and they also overruled the Belgian government and granted citizenship to Laura Rayner, who is a British woman married to a Belgian and has been living here continuously since 2009. And the court ruled that contrary to Belgian administrative practice, Laura did not give up her residency rights as an EU citizen when she moved here in order to take up a job at the parliament. The Belgian government also, in a separate case, ruled uh, that one Ryan Heath, a 37-year-old from Brussels, who had lived here continuously, often in a commune queue for nine years, that he was entitled to permanent residency. So... Okay, now it's time for Dear Politico, which is our advice session, an admission up front. This is not strictly a letter that we received this week, but it came up in the course of researching a series of articles on diversity that we're writing here at Politico. And one of our readers approached us with this problem. I'm a person of colour working at the European Parliament as an advisor to an MEP. I'm sick of attending drinks, receptions and other events at Parliament and having other guests think that I'm there to serve them drinks or clean up after them. Of course, I respect many people of colour who do have service jobs in the Parliament. But what can I do to wake up these people to the fact that you do not have to be white to be an EU decision maker or advisor? Now, I sometimes just skip these events and meetings. Oh, no. It, it's sad that this is this is happening to you. It's it's terrible. Uh, we are at the in the twenty first century. We are in in Brussels, the European capital. But as well, there are some little tips that you can do. Maybe you should take a more leading role in these events. Maybe you could be a panelist. Maybe you can be a speaker. Maybe you can have your name on a program, and they put your title. Maybe as well, and please forgive me, you might as well dress up in a different colors from what the caterers or the, the waiters and waitresses are, are, are dressed up. I mean, these are little things and measures, but it would really soften a little bit this kind of attitude towards mm. you. It Any suggestion that, that this source should confront the people? Should you say something I, to them directly when they try and hand you the glass? I was going to say that not this exact same thing. I think this is a very serious kind of insinuation that people of colour can't be in powerful positions. But I experience misconceptions about me in the Euro Brussels that because I look, because of the way I look, because I'm a young woman, and people often ask me if I'm an intern, 
Uh, and I usually say back to them. But you look young, Alva, as well. I, well, thank you. Yeah, this, this is, is Alva Humblebrag now, yeah, yeah. isn't it? I but, look so young. People often think but I'm It's also because I'm a woman, though. Yes. It's, it's not just because of that. It's also because I'm a woman. So and I truly believe that if we're going to break down stereotypes about women, about young people, about people of colour, you need to kind of challenge it. Excellent. Now, remember, we can't do the Dear Politico advice section without your questions, your problems, your concerns. So if you're worried about something and think we can help, please drop us an email to playbook at politico.eu. That's playbook at politico.eu, and we'll do our best to answer it. So thanks so much for your input, Lena. Uh, pleasure. And thanks so much, Alva. Exactly. A pleasure as always. And yeah. we'll be back next week with the Brussels Brains Trust. Bye-bye. Bye. So that wraps up another edition of EU Confidential. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Remember, we're just getting started, so that means we need your help to spread the word. Share the show on social media, subscribe, review us on iTunes, or get in touch by sending an email to playbook at politico.eu. And we'll be back next week at the same time with another EU Confidential. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.